everyone, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We are excited to be back with you once again for another exciting conversation with some of the movers and shakers in Methodism and anticipating the new Methodism. I'm here with my co-host, Stephanie Greenwald. Stephanie, how are things in Oklahoma? Things are going well in Oklahoma. We've actually had a little bit of a cooler summer, which is a big deal in Oklahoma. Yeah, and and things here in Colorado have actually been cool. I'm actually wearing my uh, wool today because we've had some cold mornings. It's it's not bad. I mean, I don't I don't swat bugs or deal with humidity like y'all do in Texas, or should I say more accurately in my Western Pennsylvania accent, as Yun's guys do in Texas. So so maybe there's a reason we moved out here. We love it quite a bit. That's right. Oh, that's so good. You have a very special guest to introduce for us for this week's podcast. We're really excited to have him along. So why don't you introduce him, Stephanie? Well, I am just thrilled to have this special guest with us today. Uh, It is Bishop Bob Hayes. He was born in Houston, Texas, and heard the call to ministry at the age of 13. He became a third-generation pastor serving in churches in Texas Annual Conference, along with being the superintendent of the Houston Southwest District. Uh, and the Texas Annual Conference Treasurer from 2001 to 2004. He was elected to the Episcopacy in 2004 and appointed to serve the Oklahoma Annual Conference and the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference, where he served as bishop until his retirement in 2016. I just love this man because I had the privilege of working in a church while he was bishop in Oklahoma, along with my husband, my father, my brother, who were all serving as pastors while Bishop Hayes was the bishop of Oklahoma. And it is such a joy to have you with us today. Bishop Hayes, how are you? I am doing fine. Thank you to Stephanie for for allowing me to be here and spend some time with you and Bob. Well, we're just thrilled to have you. We appreciate you taking that time too, Bishop. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, we, we want to get right into it because we don't often get a bishop a bishop's full attention for up to an hour. So, so we want to make sure that we, we maximize this time well. So, so let's get right to it. Okay. Okay. With all All the issues, all the issues facing the denomination, as we look toward general conference next year and annual conferences being forced to make difficult decisions in the next year that follows, can you give us, a, a bishop's perspective on where the denomination is right now. I'd be delighted to, Bob, and I'll, and I'll start by saying it's it's very unfortunate that we find our denomination uh, in this position that we're currently in. But if you look at the history of our of the Methodist Church in America, it's really not an unfamiliar place for us to be. Uh, just, just as a little background, I'll get to your to, to your answer. Uh, as far back as eighteen, uh, seventeen eighty seven, when Richard Allen and Absalom Jones walked out of the St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia, and later organized the AME Church, uh, that was the first division. Uh, unfortunately, it was over race issues. Also, again in eighteen forty four, when Bishop James uh, Andrew refused to free of slaves that were acquired through a, a marriage. Um, the church split again, became the, EM, uh, the Methodist Episcopal North, Methodist Episcopal South. 
Um, and then again in April of uh, 1939 in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, the ME and the ARS, and the ME North and the ME South both uh, united after 95 years of separation. However, they established the central jurisdiction uh, in 1939, and that was made up of African-American churches. Uh, I grew up in that jurisdiction uh, that lasted from 1939 to 1968. And uh, by the way, when they passed that legislation, everyone in the general conference uh, saying uh, we're marching to Zion as the as the African-Americans wept, knowing that that would be a division there. So these were issues over race and all of that. However, there were a lot of other issues that arose uh, during the life of the church since its beginning. And I share that brief history because our general conference and our annual conferences uh, are gonna have to continue to make difficult decisions that affect the life of our denomination. We are at, again at a crossroads and uh, we are at parting ways. And for those of us who, who know that history of how many times we have been down this road before, not only with AME and, and other of ME North, ME South, Free Methodist, uh, you name it, all the way to the Salvation Army, we, we know what division is in the Methodist church. So here we are again at this crossroads, this parting of the way. And I think that what people need to understand in the Methodist church is that difficult decisions are not new to us. We're gonna to have to accept them. We're gonna to have to make them. But when it comes to our core beliefs, uh, such as biblical integrity and, and authority of the scriptures and things like that, things, things that are core to us, I think people are, are willing to make the hard decisions to move us in another direction uh, and, and, and we'll do so because these are issues that cannot be compromised or accepted. So my perspective is, yes, we're going to come up again on a, another division, which is not new to us, but it's one that we can accept if you realize and understand what's at stake here. And so that's what my perspective is, is that I'm, I'm prepared for that. And I know that my forefathers and all the others who came before me went through that. So it's something that we're gonna to have to go through and make those difficult decisions, but I think it's all for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, it is really interesting to think of all of the times that we've had division within our church. And it usually always births something new. Hopefully the idea would be that it birth something better. I would love for our listeners to hear what your hopes and dreams for the new Methodist movement are. You've seen the changes over the past decades and you, your family has lived through those as you have just talked about. Um, but in knowing our history and our current situation, what are your dreams for the new denomination? Well, that's a very good question, Stephanie. And I'm, I apologize, we only have a few minutes because I could take two or three days to tell you what my vision <laughs> would be for a new movement, a new Methodist movement. Uh, I, first of all, I have no bounds or limit as to what that new movement would look like. I, I, I envision a movement that, uh, that can move beyond the division we have known for the last 50 plus years. Uh, I, I sense a fresh wind of the of the spirit where we may not all be of one mind, but we will be of one spirit. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so I envision a, a church that, uh, that has at its core uh, missions, really. I, I, I think we have, we'll have a renewed interest in missions because I believe that mission is the lifeblood of any denomination. I believe that uh, uh, it allows us and, and to focus on the essentials. That's what I think, uh, uh, believe a new, a new movement, a new denomination would, would allow us to do is to focus on the essential matters of our faith. Step away from the emotionally exhausting matters of sexuality and, and uh, we might be able to soar and really live out our beliefs and our doctrines. Let me just share this with you. I was sitting in the balcony in 1968 as a young college student when the General Conference of Unification came to Dallas. I somehow got a little ticket and squeezed into a little seat there. And as a young college student, I can't really describe for you how proud I was to be a United Methodist when that conference was over with. I saw, I envisioned new possibilities and new opportunities for me as a person entering ministry. I was all prepared to go to an African-American seminary and got an invitation from from SMU to come to their campus. And and, and that was something new. That was was something that was thrilling for me. And so I, I get the same feeling now as a young college student sitting in the balcony, I get the same feeling now as we prepare ourselves for the future. On that day, I never dreamt that I would become a bishop, but it goes to show you how high my hopes were and how, how strong the possibilities and opportunities were. And so my hope, my dreams, my, my vision for this new denomination are as high today as they were then. Uh, back in 1968. So it's limitless, it's boundless. And if we can just gather up that energy that we've exhausted all these years and and channel it in a direction of of hope and faith and and the Wesleyan tradition, I, I think we will be just an outstanding, outstanding denomination and future movement. That's how I feel. Mm. I, I'm intrigued because we don't often get to have long conversations with with bishops okay and i i recently i was in london last year and i got the chance to see hamilton and i heard that that great song about being in the room where it happens mm-hmm. and and i <laughs> i kept thinking i apply that to everything now this whole <laughs> idea of I, I really we hear about the council of bishops all the time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and i always wonder what's it like to be in the room where it happens uh, yeah. There and especially in recent years, where the division has been so deep. Mm-hmm. So, can you give us kind of a uh, an inside look, as much as you can? I know you, yeah. you don't want to give away the store there, um, but how do you work with those in the episcopacy who have differing views on biblical interpretation and, and social issues? Well, Bob, I think that has been one of the most difficult aspects of this job as an episcopal leader. Really, and the reason I say that is because when bishops are consecrated, we all take the same vow. We take the same oath. We take we take the same pledge. Uh, I think it's paragraph four fourteen that says, "What we're required to do is to to guard and transmit and teach and proclaim, cooperatively and individually, the apostolic faith." 
as it is expressed, and this is a part, as it is expressed in scripture and tradition. It also says to teach and uphold the theological traditions of the United Methodist Church. And so when individuals take upon themselves to step outside those vows that they made at their consecration, I have a problem with that. I really do. If a person has no intention of fulfilling the role of a bishop as expressed at their consecration, then you ask the question, why, why seek election? And what I have done to answer your question on the inside in the room, what I have done over the years, uh, Bob and Stephanie, is to do my best to love my brothers and sisters who serve alongside me because they were also made in the image of God. But when it compromises the integrity of the office, I find myself discouraged and disillusioned. So as I went on into uh, my term, my 12-year term, I, I became a lot more disillusioned because I, I did not see people actually trying to fulfill their vows at the consecration that where, where they were. So uh, it's difficult. It really is. It's like the room is divided. It's like, it's like there's always this elephant in the room that you know exists. And I know that people come from different parts of the United States and they try to represent their constituency. But when you compromise for, for the sake of social, for, for how, how, how your community or your, your city or how people that, how they want to live their, uh, their lifestyles and, and, how, and how you want to give up your integrity just to accommodate those things. I, I, I can't see that. So it, it was very difficult. That's a good question. It's very hard to do. And even now as a retired bishop, I find myself not really going back to a lot of the meetings or participating in them because it's like we speak two different languages and we don't have an interpreter in the room. So coupled with that, that inside view of the, of the Council of Bishops, mm -hmm. and we've seen how things have worked out and you've, you've articulated that very well. It's what most of us imagine is going on in there, that it's like a lot of local churches, like a lot of clergy meetings in different places and annual conferences, I know it's that way here. There are a lot of divisions that take place. But if, as you think about Episcopal leadership in a new traditional Methodist denomination, mm -hmm. what's your vision for that? What might that look like and how might it be more effective in a new church? I believe that uh, what we, what I envision in a new church is for us to, to claim those things that have made us unique and distinctive over the last 200 plus years. I think, I don't think the system is broken, but we have to have, we have to have people who are willing to enforce, or, or I guess enforce may be a, a bad word, but people who will uphold the system as we know it. I, I think, I think we have, uh, I think the Methodist church, it's, it's, it's doctrine, it's polity, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal movement. But if we would only adhere to the movement that's been given to us, to, to the rules and the regulations and the constitution, all those things that are already in place, if we lived up to them, we would have, we would have a church that would be 
even more outstanding than than what it has been in the past and what I think it could be in the future. But so I don't think the the system is broken. I think what we need to do is to is to gather up the pieces that have over these these last few decades that have fallen off and 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 we have to we have to elect people who are willing to to follow the rules not for their own personal gain or their own personal beliefs but for the good of the church for the sake of the kingdom for the cause of Christ we we need episcopal leaders who are going to be strong in that aspect also who have that human touch who understand the needs for of people, wherever they may be, white, black, red, brown. I think you're going to need a leader that that has his or her finger on the pulse of, of, a, of, a, of a nation and of a people who are in need, desperate need of spiritual, spiritual growth. And, and, and I think what we what we can do is to, to bring those broken pieces together. You know, Christ was a specialist at mending broken things. When, when he met the disciples, he, 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 they, were, they were mending broken nets. When, when, he, when he went to uh, heal people, there were broken relationships. I believe that our faith and belief in a, in a risen Savior can mend the broken pieces that we have. And if we just would allow ourselves to live up to our creeds and our, our, our uh, vows, it would, it would be something that, that our church hasn't experienced in 50 years. I just love that, Bishop Hayes. You know, I, I love it that you talk about a leader that can can see the needs, the human needs, but also uphold the vows they took. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I loved that about you when you were our bishop. Those were the things that you did. You had that personal touch and also upheld your vows, which we greatly appreciated. But I know that social issues and theological differences are not the only things causing tension in our society right now. We've all seen this, that there's racial tension across the U.S. that is highly divisive right now. Um, so as a black bishop, can you share your perspective on ways that we can bring unity to our denomination and to our world? I'd like to know your perspective on how we can do a better job as we move okay. into a new expression of Methodism, of creating unity instead of division. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, uh, Stephanie, I would say that we must somehow learn how to live together as equals, or as Martin Luther King Jr. said, we will perish as fools. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up during the civil rights movement. I was born and reared in the South during the Jim Crow era. I remember the colored water fountains, the segregated facilities and all of that. I never went to an integrated school until I went to seminary. As a matter of fact, I finished from the same high school that George Floyd finished from. Uh, and what I've learned throughout my life is that if we're going to achieve unity in our denomination and our world, we must first acknowledge our nation's original sin of slavery look at and examine vestiges of discrimination where they exist and do our best to rid ourselves of, of systemic racism, even in the church. Uh, if we don't learn how to uh, get to know each other as equals, uh, we, we, we need to have these opportunities 
to find where differing cultures can come together. And if we're gonna create a new expression of Methodism, of unity, it has to be built on the foundation that we are indeed one in the spirit. We must be willing to believe that. We have to foster the idea that, that love will overcome hate, that, that good will triumph over evil, that racism, that racism has no place in the church or our society. When all of this began happening a couple of months ago, uh, in the church that I serve, which is 99.9% .9 Anglo, mm -hmm. I was amazed at how many people were willing to, to, to get on a Zoom call every week for two hours and talk about race and talk about what they didn't know and the, the, the value of learning what it was like to be a black man growing up in the South. And so it has been a learning experience for both of us, for, for both cultures. And I believe that that's the missing piece of it is that we really have to come together to understand and know each other, to be able to live together and to put, put, a, put aside the systemic racism that, that affects all of us, black, white, whatever. But until we get to do that, we, we won't be one. And if, if we're willing to do that, I believe that, that we can change a lot of things. Bishop, your, your words are very helpful to us. I think as we think about this time in particular, we seem to come back to this so often, you know, as a culture. And I think you're absolutely right about going back and, and sort of acknowledging our corporate sin that's been part of our culture for a very long time. And, um, and I really appreciate you bringing that up. And are there specific things you might say to, to pastors and churches about how they're, how they're addressing these, these issues in particular? Well, I would say to uh, pastors uh, and to congregations to reach out. Reach out to congregations that don't look like you, that, that aren't the same color as you, and may not even be the same denomination as you are, but, but reach out and, and do some exchanges of, 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 of cultures and, and, and programs and ministries. Allow yourselves to step outside the comfort zone. None of these discussions, I want you to know for the last month that we've engaged in these discussions, they have, none of them have been comfortable. And what we've been looking for is a discussion that's gonna make us comfortable and at ease. There, there's, not, there's no such thing when you start talking about a corporate sin or something that happened many years. I remember having to give the, the talk uh, to, to this Zoom class on white privilege. It, it was not an easy talk. When we talked about Black Lives Matter, it was not an easy discussion. When we talked about reparations, it was not an easy discussion. But we, we channeled it and funneled it through the lens of the gospel. So when you start talking about reparations instead of reparations, what about restoration? What about restoring those communities and those entities that have suffered the sting of racism? What about understanding that Black Lives Matter has nothing to do with patriotism or the flag or whatever, or changing the narrative? It, it doesn't. What about trying to understand one another from the lens or from the shoes where, that we stand in so that people might be able to understand, maybe for the first time, what it feels like to be black, what it feels like to, to, to be white, and, and begin just reaching out and knowing. Nothing beats 
getting to know someone or getting to understand what that person has been through. Uh, and so I, I believe that that's what pastors have a unique opportunity to do because everywhere in every community, there is a congregation that is different from yours. Do you know anything about them? Do, have you ever visited them? Have you ever invited them? So just do that. Just start learning about one another and that will lead to some tremendous opportunities. Mm -hmm. You know, Bishop, I remember so often hearing you preach and friends who are listening today, I'm telling you, this man can preach. He can bring it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love for just along the same lines as okay. what Bob Kaler is talking about. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on Jesus and how he unified us. When when pastors are listening to this today or lay people are listening to this today, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the passages of scriptures that they can use about how Jesus did this very thing. He mm -hmm. unified us instead of dividing us. What are your thoughts there? I, You know, you could point to any passage Jesus was so consistent. I, I mean, it, it was always, always the message, the kingdom, the, the beloved community, those kinds of things that, that he just always, always uh, uh, insisted upon. When, when, when he came upon uh, the woman at the well, when, when the woman with the flow of blood touched the hem of his garment, when he came upon Zacchaeus, when at every turn, in the scripture, uh, he was always talking about, just for instance, the scripture with Zacchaeus, uh, hated, people, people saw him going to his house and just could not believe that, that it was, it was uh, uh, eating with a tax collector. But instead of trying to take away from, from, from uh, Zacchaeus, he, he added to the integrity and, and he said, I will restore. I won't repay, but I will restore. And that was one of the things. Look at the look at the the case of the lost sheep. Okay, he left the ninety nine to go and get the one that was in danger. You know. Now let's say, for instance, the the, the Black Lives Matter thing. The one sheep was the one in danger. He went to rescue the, the other ninety nine. Didn't say, what about us? No. The one that was in danger was the one that was important. Through the lens of the gospel, there are all kinds of stories that can be shared and told because Jesus was the ultimate professional in trying to bring people together, restore people, heal people, and develop people uh, to, so that they would understand their role in God's kingdom. I. I believe that there's no substitute for the gospel because the gospel is as alive, it is as fresh, it is as new on this August the 3rd as it was a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. It is, it is vital that we preach the gospel, stand on the word because we have so much that we can pull from because that's that's what Jesus' life was all about. And and Bob uh, Stephanie knows this. When I would get in a pulpit, the very first thing I would say was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, I, I would just that's the way I would start because if you don't start there, or if you don't end there, you've wasted your time. <laughs> 
<laughs> Amen. Absolutely true. That, now we got we got preaching already right here on the podcast, yes, which is you. fantastic. <laughs> we, we just have to wind the bishop up and let him go. I think that's yes. that's where we we need to go. And and I I I so appreciate that. I think that energy, that excitement, that that place of starting, because yes. that's really who we are as Methodists, right? We're yes. we're designed, we're called to be formed, the means of grace are all about making us to be more like Jesus in all that yes. we say and do. Yes. Yes. And, um, and so as I, as I, as we kind of come to a, a wrap here, I'm, I'm curious, this is a, a question that I have been asking a lot of people. We're in this time when everything is, is sort of conflicted and, and mm -hmm. the, all the issues that have arisen are just magnified by the fact that people are in isolation from one another and, mm -hmm. and all of this. So I, I've been asking a lot of people about encouraging words. We hear the bad news everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. So this is an opportunity, I think, for an Episcopal leader to say to <laughs> clergy, churches, even other bishops right now, yeah, yeah. Um, what kinds of words of encouragement might you give us in this time and as we look ahead? It's amazing you would ask that because this is a spirit thing that's working, Bob. I, I'm preaching on Sunday and I, I, I had a chance to start thinking about this morning what I wanted to preach about. And the spirit led me to 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. And the very first verse in that 2 Corinthians 4 says, since we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. And it goes on and explains about the different situations, though we're knocked down or crushed or, or, or what it goes. Paul goes through and, and explains all the situations, though we are isolated because of this pandemic, we're quarantined, we're this, we're that. We do not lose heart because you see, there's something at work that we cannot see. We, we can't even begin to understand it, even if we did see it, because it's a God at work who is making all things new. And so when we want to give up hope and when we want to throw in the towel, uh, we need to understand that this is God's timing and we, we're not going to lose heart. We're, we're not going to get knocked down without getting up. We're not going to be perplexed. We're not going to be discouraged because we, we belong to, to a God who who, who not only makes all things new, but a God who I know has been faithful in the past and will be faithful in the future. I have a very good friend. Every time we talk on the phone, the last thing he says to me is, be encouraged. Be in, you don't know how much that means to me to hear those words, be, I might have a bad day, but when I hear him say, be encouraged, uh, I, I, it just lifts my soul. So I say to those who are listening to us today, go to 2 Corinthians 4 and just read that first verse because we are all engaged in this ministry together. It's ups, it's downs, it's good points, it's bad points, but we do not lose heart because we serve a God who has who has been faithful to us in our past, who is even now in the midst of all of this faithful to us and who has a glorious future that we will see and live into in the days to come. Hmm. Be encouraged. 
Oh, Bishop Hayes, I just can't thank <laughs> oh, you. We have to take up the offering now. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's exactly right. Oh, it's so good. I just cannot thank you enough for being here with us today. I know it has done my heart so good to hear your words of encouragement. I know it is the same for our listeners. Thank you for your work you. for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for continuing to fight the good fight and for helping us to be encouraged as well. And thanks for being here with us. Today. Thank you both. Thank you for allowing me to be here. And thank you, Bob. I am encouraged. Thank and, you. Uh, you. and we thank you for that, for that word. Um, this is probably the first real preaching we've got. On, on <laughs> oh, <man. podcast>. yes. <laughs> and it's, it's just marvelous. So thank you. we thank, thank you. you. And, and we thank you for, for give, being a faithful witness uh, during God your time you. as an Episcopal leader and even beyond as you continue to do so. We want to remind you that you can Email us at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. And make sure that you leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That's a great way for us to drive more traffic to the site, to hear some great preaching, some great inspiration from folks like Bishop Bob Hayes. So we thank you, Bishop Hayes. We look forward to seeing you here again next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.